Hi, my name is Nick Smith, founder and creator of Part-Time Pilot. Now, after three years, five flight instructors, and over $22,000 out of my bank account, I was finally able to achieve my dream and become a private pilot. Now, I have a bachelor's and master's in aerospace engineering and over 10 years experience as a flight test engineer. So if it was that difficult for someone like me, no wonder eight out of 10 student pilots never end up becoming a pilot. So this is why I created Part-Time Pilot, and this is why I'm creating this podcast. This podcast will be your audio ground school and just another way Part-Time Pilot is making flight training easier and more consumable for you. So with over 300 students and counting that have used our content to pass the FAA private pilot exams, I hope that you can use this podcast to become the next student to do so. So thank you, and I hope you enjoy listening to the Part-Time Pilot Audio Ground School Podcast. Hello, hello. Welcome, pilots, student pilots, aspiring pilots. Welcome to the audio ground school podcast my name is nick smith i am your host i am the founder and creator of part-time pilot online ground school and other helpful things we got some things in the works we got an app coming out here sometime soon i don't like putting dates on it because i am a bit of perfectionist so we got you know got to do the testing and things like that and also an instrument rating course coming out hopefully soon as well so stay tuned for that stuff but i just wanted to thank you guys for listening it's crazy we have 160,000 downloads you know we got a lot of people who are using this, you know, they're inside the online ground school, which I highly recommend because you can read the lessons then you can watch the video and then, then you can go to work or, you know, work out or go on a run or whatever and listen. And then by that time, all the information is going to be really embedded in your mind. You can take the quiz and move on from there. It's a great way to learn. But we got a lot of other people who, you know, and we'll read off one of our reviews here in a sec that they're using this as a review. They're already a pilot, but they're rusty on all this knowledge. So they're using this on their commute to work. Or maybe they're going for an IFR or commercial, but it's been a while. So they need to review this, some of the stuff to pass their test. Whatever position you're in, thank you for listening. And as I mentioned couple times we've been doing it for about four or five episodes now we have a couple new segments one segment is i'm going to read reviews off that i get on apple podcast so the reviews really really help the reviews and ratings really really help us get seen and the more we get seen the more we can do for our students like scholarships speaking of scholarships i mentioned last week that the deadline is august 21st to apply for the thousand dollar part-time pilot scholarship we do three of these a year and these ones these thousand dollar ones we also give free ground school to the runner up but these ones are exclusive to members of the online ground school and so the next one of those is has a deadline of august 21st when i announced it last week i didn't realize how close it was so i think this episode is coming out august 14th so you have one week remaining to apply for that scholarship so get out there and apply for that. But you have to be a member of the online ground school. Once you're in, the short application will be in your welcome email or on your membership page. Now, I mentioned we also do a fourth scholarship. We used to do four $1,000 scholarships to only our members of our ground school. But now our fourth scholarship is open to anybody in flight training. We do this just once a year. We just had it in May. We'll do it again in May. And anyways, when you leave a review and you like and spread the love and tell people about our podcast, the more people that download, the more eyes that get on it, the more opportunities we'll have to partner with people. And every partnership 
I don't know if I said this before, but every partnership that I get through the podcast, the whole goal of that is to raise money for those scholarships. So that's why I started a part-time pilot was to help make the time and money burden, because time is money, right? Time and money burden of becoming a pilot easier for people out there. You know, it's all in the name, part-time pilot, because they know because it's so expensive, you have to have another job to finance it, right? So if you have a job and you're flying, you are technically during that training phase, a part-time pilot. So how do you manage your time and money during that training phase, it's really, really tough. So that's what Part-Time Pilot is all about, to help that. And if you guys help us by leaving reviews, it helps us then get more opportunities to raise more money for these scholarships. So our next $1,000 scholarship deadline is August 21st. You gotta be in the online ground school for that. But if not, we do one every year in May, which is a bigger pot of money. And so yeah, those are our scholarships. Another thing, if you leave us a review, we'll read out here on the podcast. So we have one, just one review this week. It's from Arrow Warrior, five stars. They said, wish I would have found this during my private training, but I'm using it now to refresh and get ready for instrument training. Thank you so much for the free content. Well, Arrow Warrior, you are welcome. And thank you for the comment and the review. So Again, if you want to leave a review, it helps us out a ton. If you want to spread the word of the podcast, that helps us out a ton. And if you leave a review, I will read it out here on the podcast. So thank you for that. Thank you, Aero Warrior. Now, the next segment that I started recently was listener mail. So you can submit questions for listener mail many, many ways. It doesn't have to explicitly state that it's for the podcast. It just be any question. I might pick it for the podcast. You can do it on our Facebook study group. It's the Part-Time Pilot Online Ground School study group. Or you can send us an email at team at parttimepilot.com or send us a message on Facebook or Instagram. Instagram's at part period time period pilot. So wherever we do, I might read off your questions. So this week, it was actually a few weeks ago in the Facebook group, someone mentioned that they were having troubles with all the altitudes, remembering all the altitudes and what they're about, right? So if you remember when we covered this, there's indicated altitude, there's true altitude, there's absolute altitude, there's pressure altitude, and there's density altitude. And as a new student pilot, hearing all those things can be really, really confusing and understanding, trying to remember all those and what they are all used for. So I thought, you know, I didn't have a good answer for them when they asked that a couple weeks ago. I said, you know, it, it just takes practice. I reiterated what they are. I just said, you know, basically tough luck. It just takes practice. You know, I didn't say that, but I thought, man, you know, I wonder if there is a mnemonic device or some way to remember these. So I went out and I searched and I couldn't find. So anyways, I started thinking about it and I thought, why don't we make up our own mnemonic device for the altitudes? So I thought of one and I want you guys to let me know what you think or if you've ever heard of another one for remembering the altitudes. So you can send me an email team at parttimepilot.com, message me on Instagram at part period time period pilot or in the Facebook study group. So the mnemonic is I tapped, I-T-A-P-D. So that's indicated true absolute pressure density. Now I made a joke in our Facebook study group when I posted this, you can kind of remember it like I tapped that, <laughs> I tapped that, <laughs> that I'm totally kidding. But if it helps you remember it, it helps you remember it. So I tapped, I-T-A-P-D, indicated true absolute pressure density. So that's just to remember them all. But what about to remember what they are? Well, we could do a little rhyme. I thought indicated with my eye, true is no lie, absolute so I don't die pressure to reference by, and density how I actually fly. So 
maybe that rhyme maybe you can make a little jingle it might help you can say i tapped i tapped will help you remember indicated true absolute pressure density from there you can say indicated with my eye true is no lie absolute so i don't die pressure to reference by and density how i actually fly so indicated with my eye right we see it with our eye on the altimeter true is no lie the actual altitude we want to know about above msl right true is no lie that's the actual altitude we want to know so that's the no lie altitude that's the one we want to know above msl absolute so i don't die well that's the above ground level we want to make sure we don't run into terrain right so we got to know absolute so i don't die pressure to reference by that's what we start with as a reference in all our calculations right when airliners fly above 18,000 feet they all go to pressure altitude because it's like the general reference standard pressure and altitude and then density how i actually fly that's what our aircraft can actually perform and fly at that's why we care about density altitude because that's how your aircraft is actually going to fly so again one more time i tapped indicated true absolute pressure density i tapped and then indicated with my eye true is no lie absolute so i don't die pressure to reference by density how i actually fly might have to start up a rap group for these mnemonic devices of the part-time pilot online ground school all right so let me know what you think about that one that's the only actually we do have one more listener question let's get to that one all right this question was more of an equipment question they were saying if i don't have an iphone or an ipad am i screwed for like for flight or garmin and they wanted to know which ones they work with and if they would need to get an iphone too or just an ipad or, or what what the deal is there what they should do so Garmin Pilot works with Android. Pretty sure I don't have an Android myself, but I looked it up on their website. They say they work with Android and Apple iOS. So Garmin Pilot would be good if you have like, you know, an Android device or some other device. I'm pretty sure Garmin Pilot would work with that. For for flight, I know it's only iPad and I know they do have an iPhone. So their iOS, they do have an iPhone app as well, but I don't think they have an Android app. So no, you don't need to get an iPhone, whatever. I would recommend getting a tablet though. So if you want to go this route, do get yourself a flight planning software and a tablet and don't have GPS in your aircraft and you want to have some GPS in there. What I recommend for that, I recommend an iPad. I recommend for flight. And then I recommend getting this and we have this and I'll put this link in the show notes. We have a page where we have these recommendations. We tell you exactly what you'll have to need for ground and flight training. Like, no kidding, this is what you have to get. You can't go without this because I know a lot of places out there, a lot of flight training, they say, you need this, this, and this, and they make you buy it in a big bundle at the front desk in the flight training facility, and it's like $200 or $300, and a lot of that stuff you don't need. So we tell you exactly the no kidding stuff that you need. We tell you where you can get it cheap. We tell you whether or not you can get like an older version of it or not, and if it's still okay. So we tell you all that stuff, and then we go into stuff that's kind of like, you don't absolutely need it, but we recommend it. It's going to help you. It's going to make things easier for you. And now I don't recommend getting an iPad and ForeFlight right away. I always recommend that you learn just the stuff that we're doing today, cross-country planning. You learn how to do that with sectional charts first because you're going to have to do that and show that on your check ride, and it's going to make you a better pilot and it's going to make you a safer pilot if that ever goes away. So I recommend waiting until you've done your cross-country flight without that stuff. But I do recommend an iPad rather than an iPhone. I think an iPhone is a little too small to see while you're flying. You want to be able to quickly kind of find stuff while you're flying. And iPads, they have things. 
you know, knee boards explicitly for iPads. They can just sit nicely right there. And it's just, you can even write on top of it. So iPads, I highly recommend. If you wanted to go another tablet, that's fine. And you can do that with Garmin, but I recommend an iPad and for flight. So, but you don't need to get an iPhone. Like just the tablet is fine. And iPads, I, they just have a really good track record, especially with, in aviation. So there's a reason for that. And so that's what I recommend. You don't have to get an iPhone too, but um, I re- recommend a tablet, preferably an iPad so you can get for flight. All right. So that is our listener mail. Let's get now to the lessons. So in today's episode, we are going to continue on section 12 of the course step one online ground school private pilot lessons course so this if you're following along in the online ground school membership go to your courses click on step one online ground school private pilot lessons and go to section 12 cross-country planning we're starting down on lesson six measuring courses so let's get in to measuring courses we'll probably do that one and then lesson seven which is winds and temperatures for takeoff landing and cruise so without further ado let's get in to lesson seven on measuring courses First, we want to determine our true course to each checkpoint using our plotter tool or iPad. Your true course is the course referenced to true north. For the plotter, line up your drawn course line with the center line of your plotter. And this is the course line of each leg between two checkpoints. So that's going to be your course line, the leg between two checkpoints. It's going to be a straight line, just like we did when we measured the distance but we're gonna line up any straight edge of our plotter tool. It can be the the line in the middle of the clear plotter. It could be either of the edge lines. As long as it's one of those edge lines, we're gonna line that up with our course line. Once lined up, we're gonna spin the direction wheel until zero degrees is pointing to the top of our chart. So I like to use, and I recommend using the plotter tool that has the spinning wheel. So what you're gonna do, and I again, we'll put that That'll be in the show notes in that link of recommended products. So you're gonna line it up on the line and then you're gonna spin the wheel so that the arrows on the wheel, the grid line arrows are pointed straight up. And you want the vertical lines of the grid lines on the wheel to be parallel to the vertical lines of latitude on your chart, okay? So you have lines of latitude on your sectional or terminal area chart and you want to spin that wheel until those vertical lines with zero pointing up is parallel to the lines of latitude. So you wanna line those up with the lines of latitude so that they're parallel with one another. And I have a picture here in the online ground school. I've highlighted a line of latitude in blue, and then I show the vertical grid lines that they're parallel to that and how you spin that wheel to do so. We're gonna be lined up, right? And have our line, one of the edges of our plotter tool on our course line and then we spin the wheel so the zero is pointing up and that our vertical grid lines on that wheel are parallel to our vertical lines of latitude on our chart. Then we're gonna read off the value of the direction wheel that your course or center line of your plotter intersects with. So again, if you're following along, you wanna look at that figure, it shows you exactly what I mean, but you're going to see on that wheel, it's going to intersect with the straight edge line of the plotter tool. And at the point where it intersects, there's going to be two places it intersects, right? There's going to be the bottom of, well, two sides of the circle, I guess what I'm saying. It depends on how you have the plotter tool oriented, but it's going to intersect the circle twice, right? It's a straight edge of the plotter, the ruler part of the plotter. It's intersecting that circle, the wheel. 
and it's going to intersect the edges of that wheel in two places. You want to go to the place where it intersects that's in the direction that you'll be flying. Okay? So in this picture, we have a plotter tool. We have our plotter ruler going from like the northwest to the southeast on our map. And then we spun the wheel so that our vertical lines are pointed straight up and parallel to our lines of latitude. Now, the ruler part of the tool is intersecting the wheel at one location in the northwest, towards the northwest, and one location towards the southeast. Now, our course line that we placed our plotter tool on top of, our course line is flying to the northwest. So that's the direction we're flying. So from checkpoint two is down in the southeast, and checkpoint three, for example, would be in the northwest. We're flying towards that northwest location. So that's the, the intersection we want to look at, the intersection of the ruler and the wheel. Where that ruler intersects the wheel, we want to read off the value on the wheel, and that is going to be our true course value. Again, this is kind of hard to talk about over audio, so I want you to watch the video and take a look at that image that we have for you in the ground school. So let's just recap this one more time. You're going to have a course line drawn between two checkpoints. Let's say checkpoint two to checkpoint three. You're going to line up the ruler part, one of the edges of your ruler, with that leg of your flight. Then you're going to spin the wheel so that zero points, zero on the wheel points up towards the north of on your chart. And then you're going to slightly adjust it so that the vertical lines on your wheel are exactly parallel to the latitude lines on your chart. So now we know our zero, we're lined up with true north. Okay. Our wheel is lined up with true north because the latitude lines point to true north. So we want to point our wheel to true north. Then we want to look in the direction that we're going to be flying at the intersection of the wheel and the ruler part of our plotter tool. Where that intersects, where the edge of our plotter tool ruler intersects with the wheel, we want to read off the value on the wheel and that's going to be our true course value. Again, it's true course because these sectional charts are based off a true north. So when we measure anything off a sectional or terminal area chart, when we measure a course, it's gonna be a true course because it's in relation to true north. So once we get this, we're gonna enter the true course found from your chart and plotter, and we're going to enter that onto our nav log. So we're gonna have another column. So if you go back to the next last episodes, we had our nav log started off with a column of checkpoints, right? So we have our starting airport, then we have checkpoint one, checkpoint two, checkpoint three, and so on to our landing airport. Then the next column to the right was altitudes. Then our next column to the right was distance to each checkpoint. Then a column after that to next to the right was total distances, cumulative total distances. And now we have a true course column. So we're going to, as we measure each leg of flight, we're going to write down the true course. Now, again, for the rows, we're going to have the first row is going to be our takeoff airport. The second row is going to be checkpoint one. There will be no true course listed on the takeoff airport row, okay? Because that, that's where we take off. But then on the checkpoint one row, that's the true course we take to get to checkpoint one, okay? And then on checkpoint two row, that will be the true course we take to get to checkpoint two, from checkpoint one to checkpoint two, okay? So it's always the checkpoint you're going to, that's going to be the distance, right? In the distance column, it's going to be the distance to get there. And the true course column is going to be the course to get there. Okay, so I just wanted to clear that up in our nav logs. After we've done that for each one of our 
checkpoints and our legs of flight. Next, we want to convert our true course into a magnetic course. So we're going to have another column in our nav log to the right of true course. And we're going to call that, actually, we're going to have two columns. We're going to have one titled variation and then the next one titled magnetic course. And so to get from true course to magnetic course, we're going to need variation. So that's why we put variation in between there. We do this. So to get from true course to magnetic course, you have to add a variation value which I just mentioned for the, and this is for specific to the area we are flying in or the, the current leg of flight, right? Cause we're going to do this for each checkpoint. Variation is the angular difference between true North and magnetic North. Now, when we, the reason we, so we, I mentioned that we are, we have true courses and references to a true North. That's because we are on, we're measuring that off a chart, which is flat two-dimensional object, right? Now, in reality, we have a three-dimensional sphere. We're using magnetic poles. So we want to fly. We fly with magnetic values. So we eventually want to convert this from true that we measured on a chart to magnetic. So variation is the angular difference between true north and magnetic north. The isogonic correction, aka variation, is used to correct for the errors in compass readings caused by the magnetic field of the earth so we can we can refer to them as errors that or we can just refer to them as the reason we have a difference between a true direction on a two-dimensional chart and a magnetic direction when we're flying based off magnetic poles but the variation or the isogonic correction is what's going to be that difference and this is the reason that it changes is because depending on where you are is because the location of the poles of earth and the shape of earth changes the magnetic field lines depending on where you are they and you can look this up on the internet i actually think we we will cover this when we go over compasses or maybe we I can't remember if we already covered compasses we might get to it i think we're going to get to it in our navigation section where we talk about compass navigation but basically the magnetic field lines come off of the poles and they arc around the earth and then they land in different parts of the earth but they kind of intersect with each other. They're stronger in some places than other places. So no matter where you are, there's going to be a different strength of these mag of the magnetic pole of the Earth. So your compass is going to feel a different pole from, from those magnetic field lines. So it changes. And so these isogonic lines or these variation factors changes depending on where you are. And the correction factor, again, it depends on where you are located because of that strength changes as well it also changes over time over long periods of time those the magnetic field of earth will change and we have to update these charts now in the ground school i have a picture that shows the united states and it has these lines coming down from uh, mostly from north to south and these are called isogonic lines and there's one line that goes down from like wisconsin down to georgia that's called an agonic line and that's where the variation is zero degrees so on that line, if you're flying anywhere along that line, the true course would be the same thing as magnetic course because the variation, aka the difference between them, is zero degrees. So you want to look at your chart, basically, find the isogonic line, and then use that value to convert from true course to magnetic course. To find these lines on your sectional terminal area chart, they will be found on dashed magenta lines called isogonic lines. So they're dashed magenta, and we have an example here in the online ground school where I pointed out to you guys. It's a dashed magenta line, and it has a label on it. The label is the amount of variation, and it's either going to be zero, like on the agonic line, right? And that's only if you're on the agonic line flying in like Wisconsin, Illinois, 
or Georgia, or maybe that's Alabama. I'm not quite sure. Maybe that's Alabama. Anyways, so if you're on the Agonic line, it'll be zero. Or you can be to the east of that line, right, in like New York or something, and it'll be a what's called a west variation. It's kind of confusing because east of the Agonic line, it's a, called a west variation, but west of the Isagonic line, it's called an east variation. But it's going to tell you, so don't worry about that. It's going to tell you on the isogonic line on your sectional chart. So you find that dashed magenta line, you find the label, and the label in the example we're looking at says 15 degrees W. That means west. So 15 degrees west, so that means we're somewhere in like Pennsylvania or New York. Okay, so 15 degrees west variation in this example. The west or east tells us whether that number is a positive or negative. So if west, the value will add the value that we add will be positive. So again, to go from true course to magnetic course, we go true course plus variation equals magnetic course. So we take our true course, we add the variation, and we get magnetic course. But that variation value can be a positive number or a negative number. So when it's west, it's gonna be a positive number. So for this example, we have 15 degrees west. Let's say our true course was 20 degrees. We do 20 degrees plus 15 variation equals 35 degrees magnetic course. Now if it's east is going to be negative. So in our example, let's say this was 15 degrees east instead of west, we have a true course of 20 degrees, we would add a negative 15, which is the same thing as the subtracting 15. So we add a negative 15 to get so 20 minus 15 or plus a negative 15 gives us five degrees. So our true course would be 20 degrees, our magnetic course would be five degrees. That's if it was the east variation. If it was a west variation, our true course would be 20 degrees, our magnetic course would be 35 degrees because we would add a positive number, not a negative number. So how do you remember this? Well, you know, practically, you're gonna be looking at your chart, looking for the closest isogonic line to your leg of flight. And you'll find the dash magenta line, let's say you see it and you see, okay, 15 degrees west. Okay, how do I remember? Do I add up, subtract that to my true course to get magnetic course? Well, a mnemonic to remember this is west is best, east is least. So west is best, positive, and east is least, least negative, right? So west is best, east is least to remember that. It's a little mnemonic to remember that. East is least, least is negative, negative we subtract. So the next thing we do in our cross-country plan or our nav log is fill in the isogonic correction factor or our variation. So we have that, that column for true course and we have a column for variation. So we're gonna look at each checkpoint and find the closest line of variation on our sectional chart. Now. When you're flying as student pilots on these shorter type of cross-country flights in these planes that can't fly super long, right? You know, they only have like 48, 50 gallons of fuel. You're not going to traverse through too many lines of variation, maybe one or two. And so the variation number for your whole entire flight isn't going to change much. It might change once or twice. So that column for variation might all be that same number. And we had a question about this. I think it was a listener question either today or last week. They asked, you know, when do you change to the next line of variation in your cross-country plan? Now, you can do this however you want. You know, if the difference is only going to be like a degree, maybe two degrees. So it's not going to be that much of a difference in the grand scheme of things. But I like to do, you know, I do an estimation, right? If my checkpoint is real close to a line, then I use that value for that line. If it's in the middle of two isogonic lines, let's say it's between 15 degrees and 16 degrees, I'll do 15.5 degrees. I'll just do kind of half degrees or you know halfway points between two isogonic lines. If you fly in the north, you're gonna have more variation. So the amount of degrees to a certain distance 
is going to be much more. The, the variation changes is going to be much more for a certain distance. So you may want to, you know, just kind of estimate it a little bit more. You might have, you know, instead of on a cross, a short cross country flight, instead of one or two different variations, you might have three or four or five. So just use your best judgment. Try to get as accurate as possible. Like I like to do the closest isogonic line to me. If, if I'm in the middle, then I will split the difference. Okay. So again, just to remember that magnetic course is referenced to magnetic north and true course is corrected for magnetic variation. So we had true course, which is reference to true north. Magnetic north is reference to magnetic north. And to make that conversion, we use variation or isogonic value. But now that we have listed our variation in our nav log for each checkpoint, we can now make the calculation. So we have one column of our true courses, which we measured using our plotter tool. And then we have one column of variation for each checkpoint. So now we can simply just go from one column to the next for each row, for each checkpoint, and just do our true course plus our isogonic or plus our variation. And remember that variation is gonna be positive if it's a west variation and negative if it's an east variation. So we would just go down and take the true course, add the variation for each checkpoint. Now I have an example of how to do this in a video. I'll put that in the show notes. Again, the one thing you might get confused about is that positive or negative number. The way I remember it is always just add the variation and then the variation can be based upon whether it's west is best, positive, or east is least, negative. So that is how I remember it. Try to keep it simple and just have it step-by-step step in your nav log. So as you're working through your nav log, it's just, you go from one column to the next and you can have true course, you add your variation and you get to the next column, which will be your magnetic courses. Okay, so I have one other video on measuring courses and measuring FA figures where I talk about some of the stuff that we've talked about in this episode and the last episode, measuring distances and courses and how to do that, especially for the FA exam and the little tricks on converting to those scales. So go and check those out. I'll put those in the show notes for you guys. Okay, so let's move on to the next lesson, which is going to be lesson eight of section 12. Again, we're on section 12 cross-country planning of the online ground school step one course. And lesson, or sorry, actually lesson seven is gonna be winds and temperatures for takeoff and landing. That's the one we're on, takeoff, landing, and cruise. So let's get to that lesson right now. All right, so our next task is to fill in the wind and temperature data for each of our checkpoints. So the next columns, we're gonna have a temperature column and a wind column for each checkpoint of our nav log. To do this, we will use the altitude we expect to be at for each checkpoint and find the wind and temperature data at that altitude during our forecasted time of flight. There is a small problem, however. At this point in time, we do not know the altitudes at which we will be flying at during the climb phase of our flight. So if we go back a couple episodes to when we did our altitudes, we said, okay, we're gonna take off at an elevation that is our takeoff airport, right? And then we're going to climb to our cruise altitude. But it might take, especially in our small, single, you know, general aviation aircraft, takes a long time to climb, especially if you're going up to 6,000, 8,000 feet. So chances are you're going to have a checkpoint or two that you hit during your climb. So the next altitude we came up with was our cruise altitude, right? But if we have a couple checkpoints in between takeoff and cruise, what altitudes will those be for climb? Now we can do a simple estimation. You know, we can say, all right, well, the distance to our cruise is going to be, you know, we can come up with the distance it'll take. We can use the climb performance chart. We can come up with a, the distance it'll take to climb. 
you know, we could do like kind of an interpolation, right? Let's say it takes us 20 nautical miles to climb to our cruise altitude. And we have a checkpoint in between there that's 10 nautical miles after we take off. We know that that's going to be about halfway through our climb. If again, our cruise altitude is 6,000 feet and we take off at sea level, then halfway through our climb is going to be about 3,000 feet. So we can do an estimation like that. I will also show you guys coming up how to do an exact calculation of that using some of the values and the charts, performance charts to back calculate in altitude. That's just, I like to be as accurate as possible. And I know some people out there do as well. So I'll give you both options, you know, that option to just estimate or the option to be more specific and more accurate. So back to what I was saying is, you know, we have a small problem. We don't know the altitudes for these, if we have these checkpoints that are in between our takeoff and our cruise, right? These climb checkpoints. So for right now, we're just going to skip if we have those checkpoints that are in the middle of a climb, we're just going to skip those. For now, we can come back, we can gather, you know, we can get the winds and loft forecast, we can print that out or whatever, we can have that and we'll go back to it later when we know that exact altitude. So in the meantime, we can fill in the wind and temperature data at our takeoff airport altitude, landing airport altitude and cruise altitude. We must do this now because we need the altitude we start at and the altitude we'll end at for computing the performance of our climate descent. So you might be asking, well, why won't we just do all the winds later? It's because we need the winds at our takeoff and at our final cruise altitude to be able to calculate how long it's going to take us to climb. It's kind of like a catch 22. We need that information to get that. And then once we get that, then we'll be able to estimate and figure out an altitude. Once we've got that, then we can go back and get that exact temperature. All right. So don't worry, it'll make more sense as we go through it. So for the takeoff and landing airports, you will find your data using METARs, TAFs, and local area forecasts. And I just made a video of where we can find all this information. I will actually put this in the show notes. I know we did a couple episodes ago, we did a lesson on what information you'll need. I put that video in there and it's basically a video that shows how and where I get my information for cross-country flights. So this is going into it a little bit as well. I'll throw that video in the show notes for you guys. So for at cruise altitudes, checkpoints, we'll find our data using winds and temperatures aloft. So for cruise, winds and temperatures aloft. For our takeoff and landing airports, it's gonna be a combination, you know, whatever's available of METARs, TAFs, or local area forecasts. In the winds and temperatures of the loft data table, there are only a set number of altitude levels with data. If your actual altitude lies in between two of the altitude columns, you can do one of two things. You can interpolate the temperature data and use the worst case wind data, right? Because you can't really interpolate wind. Temperature, you can interpolate because we commonly estimate that temperature changes linearly with altitude, right? It's called the temperature lapse rate. So we can say that, all right, we can do a linear interpolation because we can expect a specific trend of temperature change with altitude. For wind, not so much, right? So what I like to do, because wind comes into it matters where it's gonna either push us off course or it's gonna slow us down or speed us up. So it's gonna change the course and the timing of our flight. And that will then affect our ground speed and fuel consumption. So it's really 
more so about, you know, being conservative when it comes to wind up at altitude, cruise altitude. So that's why I say you can interpolate the temperature data from the winds aloft table, and then you can just use the worst case wind data. So for example, winds aloft has every 3,000 feet of altitude. So 3,000, 6,000, 9,000. Let's say your altitude is 7,500 feet. That's your cruise altitude. That's obviously between 6,000 and 9,000 feet. So which column of data do you use? Do you use winds and temperature for 6,000 or 9,000? Well, what I'm saying is you interpret, you linearly interpolate, you take the middle between the two temperatures. So if the temperature at 6,000 is six degrees and the temperature at 9,000 is two degrees, you would use, split the middle and use four degrees for, for your altitude at 7,500. That's what linear interpolation is. It's just, we were able to do it easily because it was right in the middle. And then for wind data, you would take the worst case. And by worst case, I mean the biggest like headwind. So if you're flying on a course of say 100 and the winds at 6,000 are, you know, from 050 at 15, but the winds at 9,000 are from 100 at 30, use the winds at the higher altitude because that's going to give you more of a headwind that's going to slow you down more and you will in the end calculate and estimate a longer time for your trip and more fuel consumption and you always want to err on the side of planning for more fuel so that's what i mean by that so you have a couple options the other option is to use the free flight planner at 1-800-WX-BRIEF you'll have to make an account but it's free and you will need to make an account here anyways in order to file and open flight plans for use with flight following once you start flying the flight planner has some limitations in that if your check ride is not a major city airway intersection vor etc you have to enter in the latitude and longitude of the exact point. So it's a bit cumbersome and I haven't used it in quite a while, the online tool, but it is a bit cumbersome. So it has some limitations, but the positive of using this flight planner is that it only takes minimal info and it will compute exact winds and temperatures at the altitudes you desire. It will estimate your climb and descent performance as well as your ground speed and time and route. While this cannot be used in place of your own flight planning, for a student pilot, you can still use the tool for wind and temperature data interpolated at your desired altitudes. You can also use it for like your estimated ground speeds. Remember when we, in last week's episode, we estimated our fuel use, we had to assume a ground speed. Well, you can go put your thing in 1-800-WXBRIEF.COM and it can give you an estimated ground speed and then winds and temperatures forecasted at your altitudes. And you can use that value as, again, as a student pilot, your instructor or your examiner, they're gonna want you to make all these calculations. So you can't use all the data, but if you tell them, hey, I use this to interpolate my winds at these exact altitudes, they will be okay with that because they know the source that 1-800-WXBRIEF.COM gets their weather information is a good source. So for getting your weather information, that's good. So if you have a weird altitude, you don't want to do some sort of interpolation or something and just put in your plan in there. Again, it, it takes a little bit of time, but you can do that. All right. So just to reiterate, for our takeoff and landing airport, we're going to use METARS, TAFs, and local area forecasts. So I'll put a video in the show notes of where we find that weather at and so you you know where to find that METAR and TAF or whatever but basically those are all surface-based forecasts so if you're looking at you know you're planning ahead of time you want to do a TAF if your airport does not have a TAF if the airport you're using does not have TAFs you would use the area forecast tool at aviationweather.gov so we have these linked in the lesson here so just go to the area forecast find the, the area that you're flying at click on it on the map and then it'll tell you all the forecast information you need to know for winds and temperatures. So you can do that for the surface if your airport does not have a TAF. 
And then for at altitude, we're going to use winds and temperatures aloft. Again, that's at aviationweather.gov. And again, I link to this in the lesson, so you can click right there and go right to where you want to go for that. Okay, so that's it. That's the two lessons that I wanted to cover today. Thank you guys so much for listening. We will continue on next week. And just a reminder to get that scholarship application in. You got to be a member of the online ground school. So it's it's due one week from today. So go ahead and enroll in the online ground school. You'll get a link in your welcome email. It's also in under my memberships. Click on your membership, online ground school or bundle deal. Scroll down, you'll find the link in the description there. Short application. And then we'll also be giving away depending on if the applications are good sometimes people just do one word answers and it's kind of annoying so but if the applications are good and i think there's multiple people that are deeming that deserve it then i'll also give out you know some free ground school or something like that okay so go ahead and do that and then next week we will continue on with our cross-country planning lesson eight we'll talk about distance to climb to cruise altitude so now that we have that wind and temperature data at our cruise and at our starting you know airport we can calculate the distance to climb to cruise altitude using our climb performance chart and then we'll go to lesson nine distance to descend to our landing destination airport traffic pattern altitude so again We'll do our performance to climb and performance to descend so we can get those distances and then come up with those in-between altitudes that we talked about and fill in our complete cross-country plan in our nav log. And then we, I think that'll be all that we'll cover, but after that is lesson 10 on air speeds. So then we'll get into air speeds after that. And we're just cooking along here. So anyways, I'll talk to you guys next week. Thanks for listening. Hey, what's up pilots? This is Nick. I wanted to take a second and talk about the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep book. Now we don't have a ton of reviews yet on Amazon, but a lot of people have gotten it and we have a lot of good feedback from it. And the reason why is because it blows out all those other test prep books out of the water, right? If you've gotten a test prep book before, it's got a bunch of FA written test questions. It's good for that. It's good for that rote memorization, practicing those test problems and stuff. But if you want to learn beyond that, it might have some bullet point summaries of some of the subjects. It might tell you some tips on multiple choice test strategies, but that's about it, right? So what if you want to learn this stuff at a fundamental level? What if you want to go deeper on any of these topics because you're just not getting these topics? And the reason I made this is because we don't have anything physical. And I myself am someone who really likes to study with something physical in my hands. I like to take it with me to the beach, to the park, when I'm traveling, whatever. So I wanted to make a book unlike any of the other books. So that's what I did with the Ultimate Private Pilot Test Prep. So how is it different? Well, it's got all those test questions just like the other books. It covers every single subject just like the other books, but it breaks things down and explains all the concepts in simple English. And then you add in diagrams and visual aids that those books do not have. And then you also add in QR codes. You know, those little QR codes that you scan to bring up a menu that came around during COVID. So yeah, you can do that with your mobile device, your iPad, whatever, and it'll bring up a video lesson on what you're watching. We also have a bunch of QR codes in there for free downloads, as well as free practice tests that come with the book. So it's on Amazon. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's only 37 dollars and it's got literally everything you guys that's why it's the ultimate test prep book it's the best bet you can get for one single book when you're studying for your private pilot test so check it out hey guys it's nick i want to take a second to speak directly to the student pilots out there you might be a student pilot that is 
you know, wondering what to do next, how to get started, or maybe you're looking for the right ground training or flight training, or maybe you've already started ground training or flight training and you're stuck, you're in a rut, and you're looking for a change, something to help get you out of that hurdle. From my own experience in flight training, after three years, five instructors and $22,000 and wanting to quit multiple, multiple times, and then now, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of student pilots through part-time pilot, I've realized that the number one thing that makes student pilots fail is that they do not have a good fundamental understanding of the ground training when they get to the more advanced flight lessons. Now, who here has seen Top Gun Maverick? Do you remember in the movie when he says, don't think, just do? Now, when I heard this, I was like, oh my goodness, this is brilliant because this is exactly what you have to be as a pilot. Now, of course, it's not that we're not thinking, but it's that we understand things like weather, aerodynamics, what our instruments are telling us, what ATC is telling us. We have such a good core fundamental understanding of these things that we don't have to think about them. And when we don't have to think about them, we can instinctively feel and fly the aircraft, look out for dangers and avoid emergency situations. If we do have to think about these things, it's going to put us behind mentally and we're going to be behind the aircraft. And when you're behind the aircraft mentally, bad things happen. And this happens when you don't have a good understanding of the ground school content. So now the first 10 to 15 hours of your flight training can go smooth, even if you don't have a good understanding of ground training, right? You can go up for a discovery flight, have a blast. You can go up, learn how to take off, learn how to land. You may be even able to solo for the first time fly a plane for the first time everything's great and dandy but once you get into you know bad weather flying or flying at heavy heavily trafficked airports or speaking with ATC for Bravo clearance or cross-country flight planning and flying solo on a cross-country flight things get a little more advanced and when this happens and you don't have a good understanding of the ground school concepts you're gonna hit a wall you're gonna start to get behind the aircraft and when this happens if you have a good flight instructor, they're going to stop you and they're going to say, okay, we need to do one-on-one -on -one ground lessons. And now you're going to be paying your flight instructor to not even fly with you, but instead $50, $60, $70 an hour to just teach you the ground school content that you should already know. And, at, and the worst part is, is you're not flying with them. So the flight training that you gain, the currency, the proficiency that you gained is going to be lost and you're going to have to redo those lessons. What happens to most student pilots is they continuously hit these mental blocks where they get behind the aircraft, they start making mistakes, and then they catch up with the ground knowledge only to have that happen again. And they start to get in this vicious cycle of having to redo trainings and repay for trainings until it gets to the point where them or their family, they finally say, you know what, this has to stop. We can no longer afford the training costs uh, without any progress, you know, and they end up quitting. Now, so how do we avoid that? Well, here comes part-time pilot. Again, I said I went through my own experience of this and I realized that most flight training and ground training is not tailored to the modern day student pilot. And when I say modern day student pilot, I should say modern day part-time student pilot because let's face it, there's a very small percentage of us that can go and dedicate 24-7, 365 to our flight training or not even miss a beat and be able to pay for flight training without working so most of us have a full-time job or maybe a part-time job we have kids we have family we have school we have all these other responsibilities on top of flight training and most of these flight trainings and ground trainings 
are not tailored towards you. And so how is it the part-time pilot tailors to the modern day student pilot? Well, the first way we do that is by keeping ground school interesting. You wanna avoid being boring, you wanna avoid that burnout. So how we do that is we present our material in multiple, multiple ways. And you're actually listening to one of them right now. You can consume our content via this podcast and an audio recording. You can do this while you're running, while you're driving in traffic, again, tailoring to that busy part-time student pilot. Or you can read through our written lessons. You know, I like to read, so for those of you that like to read, you can read through the lessons, you can see the step-by-step examples and the procedures that we have. Or you can look through our study guide and see our diagrams and mnemonic devices, have that visual cue, those visual cues and aids that help further your understanding. Or you can watch our videos. Or you can take our quizzes and practice tests to reinforce what you just learned. And then finally, you can join us live weekly for our live Q&A and our live lessons so you can see in real time these things taught out and these examples done in real time. And then finally, you can utilize our group community to form study groups, get questions answered 24-7. All of this is tailored for the modern day student pilot to keep ground school interesting, keep it from being boring, keep from having that burnout, and to find ways that you can consume the content throughout your busy schedule. And guess what? It works. We've had over 350 student pilots come through, take and pass their FAA exams without a single student failing. That's right. A single student has yet to tell me that they failed either their FAA written or their FAA checkride. So that is just proof in the pudding right there that our concepts, the way we explain things in plain written English, and the way we give you multiple ways to consume this content is working. So if this sounds like something you might be interested and you want to come join us, we'd love to have you. Just go to www.parttimepilot.com, click on Online Ground School, and we'll see you inside the Online Ground School. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys next week.